This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp. I'm so glad the BetterHelp app is sponsoring the show because I so strongly believe in therapy and how much it can add to our lives. I feel so grateful to my therapist and I just wish everyone had access to that kind of support. But now you can with BetterHelp.com. BetterHelp will figure out what you need and match you with your own licensed therapist in under 48 hours. It's not a crisis line. It's not a self-help line. It's professional therapy done securely online. They have a whole range of therapists and services available worldwide. You can log into your account and send a message to your therapist anytime you want. And you can schedule weekly video or phone sessions so you have a designated time to be with them. And trust me, I know how important it is to have the right therapist. So BetterHelp is committed to setting you up with a therapist that you truly connect with, and they make it easy and free to change if it's not working. BetterHelp wants you to start living a happier life today. And I want that for you too. So visit betterhelp.com slash politicsgirl and join the over 2 million people who've taken charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional. That's betterhelp.com and use politicsgirl for 10% off your first month. Because honestly, as you try and make the world better, your life deserves to be better too. Betterhelp.com. So our holiday cards are coming in and so far not a single one has a gun on it. Now, how am I supposed to know it's a season of peace and goodwill towards men if I don't see a Glock in a baby's hand? No, seriously. Come on, America. We can respect the Second Amendment without being armed to the teeth in matching outfits. Because nothing says Christmas like, my family can slaughter yours. We gotta do better than this. Hello, and welcome to the Politics Girl podcast. I'm your host, Lee McGowan. Let's get into it. So I'm not really into sports. They're not my jam. I don't follow a specific team or care about particular players. The closest I came to being a sports fan was growing up in Toronto, where it's part of the culture to basically worship the Maple Leafs. So I knew the game. I knew the players. I like hockey. I still like hockey. Probably not as much as I'm supposed to, but big shocker, the political nerd isn't that into sports. The thing is, growing up and watching it, I wasn't into the forwards or the superstars or the captains. I typically liked watching the defensemen. I liked people like Ty Domi, who were littler and scrappier and got in people's way and started fights because their job wasn't to score. Their job was to make sure the other team couldn't score. And I respected that job. When I played ball hockey myself, I was on defense. I have a visible scar on my shin from being slashed with a stick, stopping a goal from going in. My leg would not stop bleeding and my team was like, you want to come off? And I was like, no way, man, because I was like so pumped. There was no way I was leaving that rink. Now, I tell you this story, not just to charm you with my delightfully Canadian upbringing, but to tell you how much I appreciate the skill of a good defenseman, the importance of those who put themselves in the way of the success of a powerful oncoming team. There is a beauty in obstruction, a talent that I can respect. However, a defenseman does not block his own team from scoring. Obstruction only works if you're holding back your opponent. And when it comes to American politics, I believe the Republican Party has forgotten which team they play for. In our current world of politics, we have an us-versus-them thing happening to the detriment of the entire country. Yes, we have a two-party system, and those two parties are supposed to represent different points of view and the diversity of the political spectrum. But both parties are supposed to play for team democracy. They are both supposed to want Team America to win. And I think the Republicans have forgotten this. Today's Republican Party is all obstruction and defense. They literally have no party platform anymore. They officially stand for nothing. And they have set themselves up as the aggressive defensemen for anything the Democrats want to get done to the detriment of the American people and the nation itself. Now, I could admire this kind of tenacity, this take-no-prisoners behavior if they were on the ice. But the goals they're stopping, 
the players they're wailing on, those are their teammates. The Republicans are throwing the game. They've made a calculated decision that everything terrible that happens right now is a win for them because it will be blamed on Biden. They have cynically chosen the destruction of the Democrats over the success of America. The problem is they aren't throwing the Stanley Cup. They're throwing American democracy. Right now, the Republicans are actively attempting to tank the American economy, destroy our healthcare system, blow up international relations, and fundamentally abandon the democratic principles of our nation. They've decided if the game isn't being played the way they want it played, they'll trash the game. They're out here making sure the Democrats can't score, but that means America can't score. We have life and death decisions on the line, and they've decided their job is to make Democrats look bad. And that abdication of responsibility, that choice to choose controversy over competence and sow chaos at the expense of American lives, international relations, and the future of democracy is both contemptuous and dangerous. Let's just take a look at this past week. In case anyone's forgotten, we're still in the middle of a worldwide pandemic, a pandemic that's already killed more than 700,000 Americans. I'm going to say that number again because I think the country has collective COVID fatigue and can't even take in the scope of this tragedy anymore. More than 700,000 people have died in this country in the past 22 months. That's more American deaths than World War I, World War II, the Vietnam War, and 9-11 combined. And we should be united in that grief, not just for those who lost a loved one, which of course is the worst loss of all, but in our shared collective grief for our businesses and livelihoods and social lives, for our feelings of freedom and safety and our sense of normalcy, even for our long-held belief that living in America would somehow protect us from this kind of tragedy is something we have to collectively come to terms with. Many people were even robbed of the ritual of grieving, of not being able to hold funerals or be together after the death of a loved one. For many, the loneliness and shock of grief was compounded by the fact that for over a year, we had to do everything in isolation. Our nation, our world, has lived through a tremendous loss. But has that kind of collective tragedy united us as a country? No. We're more divided than ever because one political party has chosen its own future success over the success of our nation. The Republicans are currently railing on Biden for not shutting down the disease while simultaneously discouraging people from taking any steps like masks and vaccines that would actually shut it down. This is the same group of people who ignored the giant COVID relief bill the Democrats passed at the beginning of the pandemic for five months until it started hurting their election chances in the fall. Even then, Senate Republicans weren't prioritizing the vaccine or the increased production of PPE for healthcare workers. They were insisting on corporate liability protections to make sure you couldn't sue your boss if you got sick at work. The Republican president called the virus a democratic hoax, like the flu, no big deal, and something that would go away by Easter like a miracle. Our kids were out of school. Our friends were out of work. We had limited access to toilet paper and hand sanitizer and masks. But President Biden, with his multiple free vaccines for people ages 5 to 105, readily available boosters, an open economy, and kids back in school, is somehow screwing up? This is the same party that refused to vote for the COVID relief package that would stabilize our economy and protect our citizens back in February. Now they're out here talking out of both sides of their mouth, saying no one should be forced to take the vaccine, but also if Donald Trump was still president, there would be a special Omicron vaccine, even though Omicron variant was just made up to help the Democrats with the midterms, but also so deeply dangerous they can't believe the Democrats didn't protect us. More recently, every Republican in the U.S. Senate, with the help of two Democrats, just voted to overturn Biden's mask mandates for businesses. I mean... 
Why isn't the coronavirus fixed? Because you won't let us fix it. There's no getting around it. The Republicans have made the cynical choice to keep things chaotic so they can blame it on the Democrats. The fact that that decision is killing real people in real time is apparently irrelevant to them. In fact, a new analysis by NPR shows that since May, the time from when vaccinations became readily available, people living in counties that voted heavily for Donald Trump are almost three times more likely to die from COVID as those who live in counties that went for Biden. And counties with an even higher share of Trump voters are seeing an even higher COVID death rate. That's bananas. These Republican politicians and the media that amplifies them have chosen disinformation and the death of their own voters over allowing the Democrats' success at containing the virus. In fact, recent polling shows that who you voted for in the last election is now the strongest predictor of whether someone is vaccinated or believes the official information around the virus or the vaccine. So while 91% of Democrats are now vaccinated, the rate of Republican vaccinations has flatlined at 59%. And since hospital records tell us that the vast majority of the 150,000 deaths since May have occurred among the unvaccinated, this is a real problem for Republican voters. So while vaccine hesitancy exists everywhere, it is overwhelmingly concentrated in politically conservative communities because they are lied to on the daily for political gain. Vaccine researcher Peter Hotez says he's worried for the country, that a winter surge is on its way and the Omicron variant has the potential to make things way worse. He says, I'm not trying to change Republican thinking. I'm just saying this anti-science thing, it doesn't fit. Please just stop it. You'll save lives. But will they stop it? No. Because this us and them mentality, it's working beautifully for their poll numbers, and the conservative sources of news are so narrow that most of their voters don't know what they don't know. Hate is a hell of a motivator, and hating on the Democrats, the vaccine mandates, and the personal liberty violations plays right into their base's sweet spot. You'd think killing off your own voters would be a bad plan to win elections. But the Republicans have been very clear they aren't looking to win elections. They're looking to gerrymander and suppress their opponents into losing elections. And they don't need their voters for that. So go ahead and die, I guess. As Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan said, real America is done with COVID. The implication being, if you want to be a real American, you shouldn't care about your health. And it's depressing because people enthusiastically follow the direction of these leaders, not understanding how incredibly disposable they actually are to them. Picture Joe Biden, all dudded up in Team USA hockey gear in a breakaway shot against Team Virus. He's just skating madly towards the goal to get the virus under control. And as he lays up to take the shot, Ted Cruz in a matching Team USA uniform just body checks him from behind. The shot goes wide, no buzzer goes. And then Ted talks to the press after to say how disappointed he is that Biden didn't get that goal. That is what we're dealing with. These guys, they're nothing but obstructionists. The good of the country means nothing to them. It's power, their power that matters. We now have discernible evidence that more Republicans are dying of COVID than Democrats because of the lies they are constantly fed. But the health of the American people doesn't matter to them, just like the health of the American economy doesn't matter to them. This is the same party that just threatened last week to not raise our debt ceiling for the second time in two months. In case you don't know, raising the debt ceiling is something that's regularly done by Congress in order to pay the government's bills. The term raising the debt ceiling is kind of misleading because it implies you want to spend more money, but it's actually just agreeing to pay bills you've already rung up. 
Trump spent $7.8 trillion in the four years he was in office, and now his party has decided to not pay that bill. The Republicans ran up the debt from 2017 to 2020 with, among other things, extraordinary tax cuts for the ultra-rich, the first two pandemic stimulus bills, and lots of favors and contracts for donors and supporters. But now they've decided to leave the Democrats with the check. Congress raised the debt ceiling multiple times when Trump was in charge with the full support of the Democratic Party because that's the job. That's how we keep from defaulting on our loans and losing our credit standing in the world and crashing the global economy. But now that the roles are reversed, the Republicans have decided to just not do it. And this is a classic Republican move. Spend a shit ton of money under a Republican president, lose the election, leave the Democratic president with the tab, and then say you can't afford to pay for any of these Democratic bills because we're already in debt. My God, these Democrats, they're so irresponsible with money. Are we, though? Because the last time we had a debt ceiling crisis, aside from two months ago when the Republicans allowed us to kick the can down the road to now, was during Obama's first term, after George W. put an entire war on the government credit card and the Republicans refused to pay for it. They ended up forcing Obama to make a whole bunch of concessions to his health care bill just to have the Republicans agree to pay their own debt. And then they turned around and they were like, mm, your health care bill isn't very good. We should probably just repeal it. Look, paying our bills shouldn't be up for debate. It shouldn't be partisan. You don't play political games with the faith of America's credit. It's essential to the health of our economy that America pays its bills. You know what happens if your credit is bad. Now imagine that for the entire country. Republicans know this. They just don't care. Their big concession this time is to allow 14 Senate Republicans to vote to break the filibuster and allow the Democrats to vote alone to raise the debt ceiling. So they're voting to let the Democrats do all the governing of America by themselves while also leaving themselves open to be able to blame them if anything goes wrong with the economy. As Stephen Colbert said, it looks like the debt ceiling raise will go through, but I refuse to give one ounce of credit to the Republicans for voting to not deliberately blow up the world's economy. So yet again, the Republicans are obstructing when they should be supporting. And I know I keep making an analogy to a game, but we have to remember this isn't a game. This is politics. This is world events. Our global economy, the fate of the planet, the country is literally on the line. And not just our country, other countries. Because along with provably allowing Americans to die unnecessarily and almost causing a global financial catastrophe, the Republican Senate is also refusing to vote for President Biden's State Department and diplomatic nominees. Now, to put blame where blame is due, it's really only two Republican senators, Ted Cruz of Texas and Josh Hawley of Missouri, who are spearheading this delay. But since none of their fellow Republicans are stopping them, we have to assume they approve of the tactic. They just like not taking the heat. Right now, we only have American ambassadors in eight countries. Austria, Canada, Israel, Kosovo, Mexico, New Zealand, Singapore, and Turkey. To give you some perspective, by this time in Trump's presidency, we had confirmed nearly 40 ambassadors, 32 of them unanimously. Ted and Josh, however, are deliberately holding up the show. Instead of doing what's been done forever, mass approving non-controversial appointees to fill out the State Department and get those key diplomatic jobs filled so we can represent America's interests overseas, Ted and Josh have objected to nearly every single nominee from the Foreign Relations Committee has sent to the Senate floor. Since batch approvals have to be unanimous, by refusing to vote, Ted and Josh are forcing the Senate to have to schedule each nominee's vote separately, which is very hard to do logistically and eats up a ton of time the Senate should be using to debate and pass laws. 
Right now, we have about 50 approved diplomats just waiting around for a date for their floor vote. Keep in mind, as a member of the Foreign Relations Committee himself, Ted Cruz has already approved these people, but he's holding up the next step of the vote like there might be a problem, even though he is one of the people personally in charge of making sure there's not. Ted says he's doing this because he wants Biden to impose sanctions on a German-Russian pipeline. And Josh says he's doing it because he wants, wait for it, Biden's defense secretary, secretary of state, and national security advisor to all resign. You know that meme that's got the woman with her hands up in confusion and she's saying, that's not how this works. That's not how any of this works. That's this. Keep in mind, Ted Cruz and Josh Hawley are two of the most resolute supporters of Trump, the insurrection, and the big lie. They both vocally oppose certifying the election. Both see themselves as future presidents, and both would very much like that power to come with the authoritarian leaning the Republican Party now represents. And they are absolutely tanking our foreign relations and international power to prove their worth to team obstruction. Senator Tim Kaine from Virginia points out that Democrats had major objections to Donald Trump's foreign policy, but we did our job and confirmed the ambassadors. Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey points out the obvious, that one minority member of the Senate should not be in the position to dictate foreign policy to the president. Senator Gene Shaheen of New Hampshire plainly says, what is happening right now is inhibiting the ability of the United States of America to do its job. She says, I appreciate that Republicans in the Senate want to undermine this administration because they don't like the outcome of the past election, but it is over. China is making a pitch that authoritarianism is the best alternative because democracy doesn't work, and they're using the American Congress to prove their point. Senator Menendez reiterates Shaheen's message by saying, let me be clear, holding up our diplomats is effectively ceding influence to China and actively undermining U.S. national security interests. He goes on to say that stalling the approval of diplomats only hinders the United States' ability to confront challenges, that these individuals waiting for Senate approval are critical to confronting numerous global threats, promoting American values, and advancing the safety, health, and economic well-being of our nation. He implies that if these senators want political power and media attention, there are other ways to do it. But these foreign service officers have nothing to do with it. They aren't political nominees. They are career diplomats. And not only is this behavior short-sighted, but it hurts the national security of the United States. In fact, our European allies have become quite irritated that U.S. representatives have not yet taken their posts 10 months into Biden's presidency. More than half of the U.S. embassies abroad don't have ambassadors. One third of the State Department positions aren't filled. And there is an unprecedented nominee backlog that undermines our international interests and jeopardizes our national security. This is not how our government is supposed to work. This is not how any of this is supposed to work. So, while we've explored how the Republicans are deliberately sabotaging the workings of our government for personal gain, let's take a step away from politics for a palate cleanser I'm calling the history lesson you didn't know you needed. So we heard a lot about Christmas trees this week because the Fox News tree was incinerated in front of their headquarters. The arsonist is apparently a homeless man suspected of being mentally ill, and despite the fact that the NYPD have categorically said the crime seems to be neither premeditated nor politically motivated, Fox wasted no time making the fire the symbol of all that's wrong with America, blue cities, and liberals' perpetual war on Christmas. 
Tucker Carlson says that a Christmas tree is a symbol of a specific culture and a specific religion, and that torching a Christmas tree is akin to a hate crime and a tenement attack on Christianity itself. So I thought we would take a minute to explore the history of the Christmas tree, because knowledge is fun and Tucker is wrong. So, long before Christianity was even thought of, plants and trees that stayed green all year had a special meaning for people in the winter. Ancient people believed that the sun was a god, and when winter would come, it was because the sun had become sick. In the Northern Hemisphere, the longest night of the year falls in December, a time called the winter solstice. And after that, the nights get shorter and the days get longer. And our ancient ancestors would celebrate the solstice because it meant the sun god was getting better. And they brought evergreen boughs into their homes to remind themselves of all the green plants that would grow again when the sun was well. The ancient Egyptians worshipped a god called Ra. They also believed the solstice was the beginning of Ra recovering from an illness. So the Egyptians would fill their homes with green palm rushes, symbolizing the triumph of life over death. Early Romans celebrated the solstice with a feast called Saturnella, in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture. Because for them, the solstice meant farms and orchards would soon be green and fruitful again. And to mark the occasion, they decorated their homes with, you guessed it, evergreen boughs. The Druids, the mysterious priests of the ancient Celts in Northern Europe, decorated their temples with evergreens as a symbol of everlasting life. And the Vikings in Scandinavia believed that evergreens were a special plant of the sun god Balder. So, not at all Christian. Germany is actually credited with starting the Christmas tree tradition in the 16th century, when Christians brought decorated trees into their homes. Early Americans, however, saw the Christmas trees as completely unacceptable pagan symbols. To the New England Puritans, Christmas was a serious and sacred time, and any heathen traditions like Christmas carols, decorated trees, or joyful expressions of any sort desecrated the solemn event. They even passed a law in 1659 that anyone who did anything on December 25th other than going to church, including hanging decorations, could go to jail. This seriousness around Christmas continued well into the 1800s until the influx of German and Irish immigrants diluted the Puritan power over Christmas Day and brought in a little fun. In 1846, the very popular Queen Victoria was drawn standing with her family around a Christmas tree. And since everything she did, like wearing a white wedding dress, became super cool and was adopted by all her subjects, including Canadians and fashionable East Coast Americans, the Christmas tree was suddenly a thing. And since Americans are not one to miss an opportunity to turn something into a moneymaker, by the 1890s, buying things to put on your tree became a big business. And finally, in the grand American tradition of making things bigger and better, while European trees were small, Americans liked their trees to reach the ceiling. So I am sorry that the fox tree was burned, and I'm glad it's been replaced. But to assign motive to something unmotivated just to push your own hateful agenda is more symbolic of the Fox News brand than the tree is of Christianity itself. Personally, considering the Fox News tree wasn't even a real tree but a metal thorn with greenery laid on top of it, I think the only thing the Fox tree symbolizes is how Fox looks like one thing on the outside, but if you look closely, it's actually just fake as hell. Nothing more than smoke and mirrors that will go up in seconds with just a little bit of heat. And that's been a history lesson you didn't know you needed. And we're back and talking about how one political party has decided its entire job is to block the success of the other political party rather than working for the success of America. You guys know what a three-legged race is, right? When you tie your inside leg to another person's leg and then you run together with your collective three legs. It's about working as a team and finding a rhythm and sharing the same goal, which is winning. Trying to govern with the Republicans right now is like trying to run a three-legged race with the other person lying down. 
It's not impossible, but you certainly aren't going to win and you're going to look like a real idiot doing it. The Republicans are no longer playing for team democracy. They're playing for team Republican. But based on the current COVID death count, that doesn't even include their own voters. They're no longer looking out for the people or attempting to reach out and convince you of their policies. They've simply decided to retain power through fear and hate, capitulation to the base, and the rigging of the election system itself. It's not just about obstructing. It's about taking over. The Republican Party is counting on partisan redistricting, gerrymandering, and voter suppression to win back the House in 2022 and then hand themselves the presidency in 2024. It doesn't matter if it's anti-democratic. Today's Republican Party has proved themselves to be disinterested in anything other than blind power. And if they are allowed to have it, they've made it very clear they're not sharing it. Florida Congressman Matt Gates held a press conference last week to let us know that when the Republican Party, and I quote, takes power after the next election, they won't be holding hands with the Democrats and working on legislation. He let us know it's going to be a whole new Republican Party. He said it's going to be the days of Jim Jordan, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Paul Gosar, and myself. He gleefully laid out their plans to destroy the Democrats with legal trials and subpoenas and holding them accountable for what I'm not even exactly sure. The newest conspiracy is that the insurrection was actually an inside job by the FBI set up by the Democrats to blame the Republicans. Not that that makes any sense, lines up with any call logs or behavior or evidence from that day. But why would this group start dealing in facts now? Marjorie Taylor Greene clarified Gates's point at her own press conference last week by saying she and her teammates are not the fringe of the Republican Party. They are the party. And she's not wrong. This group of depraved, unfit, mostly criminal lowlives are the Republican Party of today. And if we're being honest, obstruction is the only thing they have left. There is no actual conservative party in America anymore. Anyone worth their salt has left the party or been ostracized for speaking up. They don't stand for anything. They aren't writing any new laws. They don't have any alternative ideas. Their current mission is simply to put themselves in the way of the party trying to accomplish things and then publicly mock them for not accomplishing them. And this group is still wildly loyal and sycophantic to Trump. The man who let COVID spread unabated through America, causing the unnecessary deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. The president who was recorded shaking down a foreign leader for dirt on his opponent. The twice impeached leader who treated the office like a piggy bank, gave favors to his children and foreign dignitaries, and used his own properties as a taxpayer grift. The man who overlooked the dismembering of an American journalist for an arms deal abandoned our Kurdish allies to be slaughtered in Syria, and knowingly spread COVID to over 500 people, including Gold Star families, and then turned around and blamed those families for giving it to him. And now we know this leader had his own people give a 36-page PowerPoint presentation on how to overturn the election that hadn't gone in his favor. A 36-page presentation that included the military to regain power and the seemingly approved killing and or kidnapping of the vice president of the United States should need be. This is it. This is their guy. The current Republican nominee for president 2024. We have to remember how many authoritarian leaders came to power through democratic means. Everyone from Hitler to Mussolini to Putin and Erdogan came on the scene through a democratic election. Yale professor and author of the book How Fascism Works, Jason Stanley, explains that fascism is the cult of the leader. A leader who promises national restoration in the face of supposed humiliation by minorities, liberals, and immigrants. The leader represents the cities as corrupt and the heartland as the true nation. 
The fascist leader takes over a political party and transforms it into a cult around himself. Only he can deal with the problems. Only he can fix it. Stanley says, the heart of fascist politics is the destruction of truth. It's based on a friend-enemy distinction, where your enemy is no longer a legitimate opponent, but people guilty of terrible crimes. Fascism seeks to transform politics into a battlefield, because in war, it doesn't matter if your enemy is speaking the truth. They're your enemy. They want to kill you, so they must be destroyed. If your leader is spreading lies, it also doesn't matter, because it's war, and he's doing what he needs to do to win this battle for you. We've seen Donald Trump and his followers use an increasing amount of fascist tactics over the past six years. We saw Black Lives Matter and Antifa be blamed for burning cities to the ground when there was far more evidence that the majority of violence during that time was at the hands of right-wing extremists, militia groups, and in many cases, the police themselves. We saw the Trump administration try to make the coronavirus a blue state or city problem until the red states were so overrun that narrative no longer made sense. We witnessed the dehumanization of immigrants as rapists and murderers and caravans of killers coming to get us so they could justify stealing their children and storing them in cages and forcing hysterectomies on women against their will. We heard Trump promise patriotic education in schools and call for the jailing of his opponents and use the military as his own personal army, all tactics associated with far-right ultranationalism or fascism. And seeing the success Trump had, many are following in his footsteps. Texas Governor Greg Abbott passing SB8 to set up a civilian surveillance system on women. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis using hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to fund his own army and calling for political enemies like Dr. Fauci to be imprisoned. Newly elected Virginia Governor Glenn Youngkin removing books from schools. And we've seen a huge uptick in protesters and right-wing militia groups arming themselves against these perceived enemies because they are told on a daily basis that Democrats are evil monsters out to steal their freedom and way of life. Stanley says you delegitimize the media and the free press by connecting them to your opponent, by saying stuff like the liberal media. You sell facts as one big conspiracy to undermine the nation, and you set yourself up as the savior. Only you are telling the truth. The only news that's true is the news that agrees with you. People have to have faith in you because only you can save them. Trump was allowed to create this self-perpetuating narrative between himself and his supporters. It's why covering him like he was a legitimate political contender from the beginning and not a lying six-time bankrupted draft-dodging New York City reality star con man was such a terrible mistake. Great for ratings, terrible for democracy. That's why not holding fake news sites like Newsmax and OAN and yes, Fox accountable for their endless lies has been so incredibly destructive and why not regulating social media's unfettered distribution of disinformation or crushing QAnon in its infancy or allowing this ridiculous stop the steal narrative to continue to get air was so pathetically irresponsible. All that legitimacy gave the propaganda room to grow. And now we have one third of the country refusing a life-saving vaccine during a pandemic, believing Donald Trump is the rightful president of the United States and that JFK is coming back from the fucking dead. I saw a political cartoon the other day that had the four horsemen of the apocalypse riding together and a fifth rider was coming in from the side and war looks over at him and he says, who are you? And the fifth rider says, disinformation. It was both brilliant and chilling. Stanley says it shouldn't have come as a surprise that Trump would deny the results of the election. He told us over and over again that was the plan. He thought he could use COVID denialism and the idea that mail-in voting was fraudulent to get his supporters to rack up a large enough lead on election day that he could declare victory before all the votes were counted, which 
is exactly what he did. But when the votes kept coming in for Joe Biden and coming in and coming in, he reverted back to his rigged, stolen narrative. He said the election was unfair, that the Democrats had cheated. He said we should stop counting the votes in some counties and keep counting them in others. He kept saying the election would be decided by the courts, that he wanted it to go to the Supreme Court, that his justices would see that the election was decided the right way. And when that didn't work, they employed the next phase of desperate tactics that we can all now read in plain English, thanks to his chief of staff, Mark Meadows, leaking that PowerPoint presentation. If you haven't read that document, I highly recommend you look into it, but I might have to do an entire pod on the insanity because apparently the mainstream media is more interested in the vice president's wired headset than the ex-president, future president's plot to seize our government by military force. Suffice it to say, the plan was to keep Donald Trump in the White House against the wishes of the American voter on or before January 6th. If they made it to certification without having overturned the election, they were dependent on Vice President Pence to refuse to certify the electoral votes, and the insurrectionists were there as a contingency plan to be unleashed on the Capitol to cause chaos and mayhem. One high-profile death was all Donald Trump needed to declare martial law, take full control of the government, and proceed without oversight. Trump spent the time between the November election and the January certification not doing his job as president in a time of national crisis when we had 4,000 people dying a day from a pandemic, but slinking around trying to find a corrupt way to keep himself in power. It's sad and sick and a travesty for America and its people. The thing is, Trump himself should not be dangerous. He's a fool, weak and small and easy to manipulate. He doesn't have the cunning of Putin, the brains of Hitler, the passion of Mussolini. He's just a sad little boy in a big bully's body. But he, or whoever follows in his footsteps, still has the chance to take over this country and make it into some sort of authoritarian one-party rule because of the Republicans. The Republican Party is one half of the government. One half of a group of people who are supposed to honor the Constitution, believe in the American experiment, and respect the rule of law but who now seem more than willing to abandon it for an even better place at the table. Trump was able to do a lot of damage to our democracy in four years, but the real annihilation is happening at the hands of those who continue to legitimize and support him, even as the evidence piles up that he and his people are absolute traitors to this country. What if the 2020 election had just been a little bit closer? What if certain secretaries of state were willing to find those votes or overturn the elections they were asked for? What if Pence had just done what he was told? What if the insurrectionists had killed Mitt Romney or Nancy Pelosi? What if Trump had been given one legitimate reason to declare martial law? Where would we be now? And where will we be again if we allow these power-grabbing obstructionist enablers to regain power? History shows us that wannabe autocrats take power democratically, then erode the democratic institutions from the inside until they have enough power to just do away with them entirely. This is what Trump was doing with the Justice Department under Barr and the State Department under Pompeo. This is what he was trying to do with education under DeVos and would have done with the military if he could only have found a more agreeable leader. General Michael Flynn, who was only fired as Trump's national security advisor under extreme pressure, just told a packed room at an Awaken America conference in Dallas last week that he believes we should be disbanding the FBI, the CIA, the NSA, and the CDC. This is a man whose brother and close confidant is still in charge of our active military overseas. The brother who took the calls to the Pentagon on January 6th, but sent no troops to protect our capital. These people are deeply dangerous. 
They are not looking to uphold our country, its institutions, or its values. They are looking to burn it all down and arise victorious from the ashes. Trump himself admitted in a TV interview last week that he might not have had those four years in the White House if he hadn't fired Comey. I guess the FBI was on to him and he needed a clean house. He's not even pretending to not be corrupt anymore. He doesn't need to. The Republican Party is giving him too much cover. You think this man or the people who support him, given the chance, will fail again? They won't. Hitler himself staged a failed coup and went to jail. But when he got out and tried again, this time he was better at it. Constant promotion, rallies, marches, an unrelenting movement towards power. He called for his opponents to be destroyed, gathered armed militias around him, launched violent attacks on those who opposed him, and 10 years after he was jailed for his coup attempt, Hitler was the Chancellor of Germany, with the Nazi party in lockstep behind him. He put his party in charge of everything. Work camps, secret police, complete control of schools and universities, with everyone's top priority being obedience and deference to the government. If you think that's not possible here, you aren't listening to the leading Republican politicians right now. Jim Powell, a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, a libertarian think tank previously called the Charles Koch Foundation, so not some liberal bastion of information, writes that although a political system with separations of powers and checks and balances like the U.S. does make it more difficult for one branch of government to dominate, those who dismiss the possibility of a dictatorial regime in America need to consider the possible circumstances that could make things worse and more politically volatile than they are now. Because in hard times, people are often willing to support terrible things that would be otherwise unthinkable. Unrest and anxiety turn people to leaders who promise to save them, to save their way of life, to make things better. Powell reminds us that ultimately liberty can only be protected if people care enough to fight for it. Because when you have politicians that are willing to push beyond established boundaries for more power, as Donald Trump and his co-conspirators have shown us they are, if they get it, they will never willingly give it back. America has to come to terms with the fact that the Republican Party may be excellent defensemen, scrappy fighters, able to change the game with their endless obstruction, but that they are no longer playing for our team. They no longer believe in American democracy and they won't fight for it. In fact, they are actively fighting against it by abandoning the people, the country, our foreign relations, and our constitution to create a void where a new leadership can be structured in a way that is better suited to them. As Midas Touch, the pro-democracy super PAC and media network said over the weekend, January 6th was the biggest crime ever perpetuated against the United States of America, and nearly every Republican is complicit. The Republican Party has chosen to undermine American democracy and their own core values to win at all costs. We talk about politics like it's your team, my team, but really the American government is supposed to be our team. We're all supposed to be cheering for Team America. And if one whole party is actively sabotaging the success of that team, then we need to be swift and severe in our punishment for their treacherous behavior. So that's it for this week. Our hearts go out to the people of Kentucky as they deal with the horrendous aftermath of those terrible tornadoes. You can help those impacted by donating to the Team Western Kentucky Relief Fund or the brilliant humanitarian chef Jose Andres World Central Kitchen that's on the ground right now feeding people. And remember, we can acknowledge the conditions and poor leadership that set the stage for the severity of this terrible event while still having deep empathy for the people of Kentucky and what they're living through right now. Now go out and make the world a better place. Thank you so much for caring enough about democracy to spend this time with me. Until next week, PGA.
The Politics Girl podcast is written and performed by me, Lee McGowan, in partnership with the Midas Touch Media Network and produced and edited by Happy Warrior Entertainment. All rights reserved.